This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Ruth Wishart, and it's my very great pleasure to be chairing this afternoon's event. Um, as you know, it's long been the contention of the publishing industry that the best authors uh, write about what they know. And this lady knows a very great deal about a very great deal and about a very great deal of people as well. <laughs> as you might expect from the former Director General of MI5. Um, and so when this uh, spy mistress uh, went back out into the cold, um, her incarnation as a thriller writer involved uh, many of the darker arts of international espionage and general skullduggery. I think it's fair to note. Um, naturally, her spy novels have featured a female lead, uh, Liz Carlyle, an intelligence officer whose work in this little, latest book, uh, Riptide, very topically involves a plot which takes us to Pakistan, Greece and Somalia. But as well as writing books, she's been doing a very great deal of reading of late, um, having taken on the somewhat daunting role of chair of the judging panel of this year's Man Booker Prize. Please welcome Dame Stella Remington. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Ruth. Um, I'm going to just start by talking a bit about my books, and then I know that Ruth is going to try and get me to talk about all kinds of other things, which I don't necessarily want to talk about, but we'll see. It'll be a bit of a challenge. Um, I became a writer quite late in life. In fact, I've worked out that this is my fourth career. I started as a historical archivist, and then I joined MI5, and then I joined the boards of various companies after I'd left MI5, and then I started writing. So I have to say that I've actually enjoyed all my careers, and I'm particularly enjoying this one. Writing thrillers was something that I'd thought about a lot, actually. It's something I've wanted to do for a very long time. I've always been a reader of spy stories, thrillers, John le Carré, John Buchan, you know, the real, the classics, actually, um, Somerset Maugham, Graham Greene. And I used to sit and think in MI5, I, I'd love to have a go at this, but of course I never actually had the time, and you really do need, you know, the space and the freedom uh, to do that sort of thing. And strangely enough, the first thing I did when I left MI5 was something I'd never intended to do at all, which was write my memoirs. I had, when I left, lots of publishers wrote to me and said, oh, we'd love to publish your memoirs. And I wrote back rather snootily, saying I can't possibly write my memoirs. They're all too secret. And then um, gradually, as the years went by, I, I gave talks to various women's groups and things. And one clever publisher turned up at one of these and said, you've just given a very interesting talk about your career. Why don't you write it down? So I did, foolishly. And um, that was my, my autobiography, which then had to be submitted for clearance. And then when I did that, there was a kind of corporate gasp in Whitehall, and they all sat around scratching their heads and wondering if I could publish it. And of course, that was precipitated by somebody sending the manuscript to the Sun, and the Sun then sending it back to number 10 Downing Street with a press photographer and huge amounts of Ferrari. So that was my sort of um, initial foray into the publishing world. And having done that, I thought I would have a go at what I'd really wanted to do, which was writing fiction. And w when I thought about it, I knew what I wanted to do, which was to try and release the spy story from the men. 
um, because all, if you think about it, all the kind of classic spy story heroes are men. And I wanted to, my stories to actually reflect the fact, which is that a lot of women now work in our intelligence services at quite a high level, and it is no longer a male-dominated world as it was when I joined. So I invented Liz Carlyle, who is um, a sharp, spiky, sparky, intuitive female who, unlike myself, as I say, has joined a service which is not male-dominated. She is able to work in all areas of MI5's operations. Lots of people have asked me if she's me, and obviously, you know, any, any character you create has got elements of you in it and elements of other people that you've met. One thing about Liz Carlyle, though, is that she has, that is me, is that she hates being patronised. And she does come across quite a lot of people in her career, men, dare I say it mainly, who patronise her. And that's where the kind of sparky, spiky bit comes in. There are really, I wanted my uh, female heroine to be a modern MI5 officer. And so she has joined a service, as I say, that is today's service. I had to wait to be tapped on the shoulder when I joined MI5. In those days, nobody knew how you joined. You couldn't apply. There was no you know, form you could fill in. And you had to wait for somebody, as happened to me, to sidle up to you and say, Psst, do you want to be a spy? Or, <laughs> or something like that, anyway. And that's what happened to me when I was um, with my husband in New Delhi in India. And that's how I started my career. I started as a full-time, well, a part-time, actually, a part-time clerk typist uh, in India. And then when we came back to, to London, I joined as a full-time MI5 officer. But I joined a service uh, where women were second-class citizens. We had a, a second-class career. And there were things we could do, which was mainly dealing with the papers. And there were things which we couldn't do, which was going out uh, at the sharp end and, and gathering the intelligence. Liz doesn't have that problem. She runs human sources agents. She's there out at the front where it's all going on. And that's how I wanted it to be. And that's how women are working in our intelligence services now. I joined a very closed service as well. And Liz still has those same problems. Although women's position has changed, the nature of our intelligence services inevitably has not changed all that much. They still are quite secretive. They're a lot more open than they were when I joined. As I say, there is now recruitment by a website. There are all kinds of um, director generals give speeches and all sorts of public information is available. But if you actually work in those services, you still can't go around telling everybody what you do. And that is a problem for Liz Carlyle, as it was for me. She has a difficulty with her relationships. And I think anybody who works in a secret organization will understand this. If you're making a new relationship, you can't start off by telling the person what you do. So you tell them some made up story. And that's not a very good start for a relationship. So Liz Carlyle has uh, certain difficulties with her relationships. And she begins the series. When I started this, I thought I was going to write one book. And actually, uh, Liz Carlyle has now turned into a series. And I've just uh, written, I've just published the sixth book. So Liz Carlyle has had a chance to develop through all this. And so she starts off, uh, because of this difficulty with her relationships, thinking she's in love with the boss. And that goes on for quite a bit. And mercifully, the boss has a permanently ill 
wife, so we're, I was able to kind of keep that going along. But then his wife, I didn't really think I could keep her permanently ill for much longer, so she had to die. Um, <laughs> so we then had a problem about what was going to happen to that relationship. Um, so I decided that uh, her boss would go off with the lady next door and um, Liz Carlyle would find another boyfriend and she's now comfortably settled uh, with a French boyfriend who works in one of the French intelligence services. So she doesn't have the problem of not being able to talk about the sort of things she does. And I have to say that, you know, this, this um, relationship problem and the family problem is a very real one. And maybe later on, uh, when I'm talking to Ruth, we might um, address that in a little bit more detail, possibly. I've also not only invented Liz Carlyle, but Liz Carlyle has a, a, a sort of group of characters, a team, as you might say, around her, who appear in all the books. And some of them are from MI5 and some of them are from MI6. And for those of you who don't know the difference, MI5 is our domestic security service and MI6 is our secret intelligence service, spending most of their time, a lot of their time abroad, gathering secret intelligence abroad. When I was in MI5, we used to sort of characterize these two services as MI5 works in teams, which it does. It's working at home and it's, it has a whole group of different people, surveillance officers, communications officers, all kinds of experts who work together in a team to gather the intelligence and solve the problems. MI6 officers tend to work in very, very small groups abroad, sometimes on their own. And we used to characterize these two services as MI5 is a team operation and MI6 officers are fighter pilots. And I think that um, what I wanted to do really was to drag the, um, the, the um, intelligence book away from the fighter pilot idea. Because if you think about all these classic spy masters like James Bond, like Smiley, like John Buchan's heroes, they're all the fighter pilot kind. They're the kind who go out and do the thing themselves. Liz Carlyle's not like that. She works in a team. She works by thought and analysis, not by rushing around with a very large gun trying to kill people. And that was really, you know, the kind, the nature of the sort of book that I wanted to write and the sort of book that I have written. But she does work with some people from MI6, and I've had quite a lot of fun actually creating these characters who are, I'm afraid, rather sort of, in my view, rather typical um, of the traditional MI6 officer. And there's a guy called Bruno Mackay, who um, has a very, he, he's, you know, he speaks perfect Arabic and perfect French, and he's, uh, he's got a very sunburned skin and his eyes are tight through gazing into the sun in Pakistan and things like that. And, you know, he's got a very big watch and his sleeves are rolled up. And uh, this is uh, my classic uh, MI6 officer, and this is Bruno Mackay, who patronizes Liz Carlyle a great deal, and as you can imagine, she doesn't actually like it very much. During the, the course of this series, I've tried to cover the sort of um, things which are the main threats to our national security. So I have gone through counter-espionage and various aspects of terrorism, and I've also covered uh, in one of my books the question of the Russian oligarchs who are living in London, very, very rich, having made a lot of money when Boris Yeltsin sold off the, the private, um, the state's industries. In this book, Riptide, I have um, dealt with another, what I think is a very sort of current issue. I get my stories from keeping a very sharp eye on what's going on in the world, and I observed that um, some young men from Britain were turning up 
in Somalia. And I asked myself, how did they get there? And that's the plot of Riptide. A young man is discovered with a group of pirates trying to hijack a Greek cargo ship off the coast of Somalia. And the question is, how did he get there? What's the backstory to this? And the backstory is, is the story of Riptide. It is a question of how a young man from a good family in Birmingham is radicalized, goes out, uh, finds himself with a group of pirates, gets arrested, and then Liz Carlyle has got the problem of unraveling what's happened, who's radicalized him, what is he actually doing, etc. And that's actually the way MI5 works. It works from a snippet of information, be it an event, be it a piece of information that comes in. They then have to consider how serious this is and then analyze it, gather in more information, work out what it all means until you've put together enough to take some kind of action. And that's the way the plots of my books work and it's the way uh, Riptide works. And I might just, if I have a minute, just read you a tiny bit out of this which just shows you um, how that, um, how Liz works. The first little bit I'm going to read is when Liz Carlyle goes to the um, Sante prison in Paris to interview this young man who has been captured with this group of pirates. And um, she, this, is, this is her um, meeting him in the prison. According to his driving license, Khan was 22, but this man looked younger, just a boy. His face and arms and wrists were thin, a scraggly black beard barely covered his chin, and the hair on his upper lip was sparse. His eyes, as he watched them come into the room, looked wary. Liz had been assured that he was being well-treated, but she wondered what had happened to him before he got here. Casal, that's the French guy, stepped up to the table and, speaking rapidly in French, explained to the prisoner that he had a visitor who would be asking him some questions. It was obvious from the blank expression on the young man's face that he understood nothing at all of what was said. Casal turned to Liz and said in French, I'll be next door if you need me, just tell the guard. She nodded and Casal left. She pulled out a chair from under the table and sat down opposite the prisoner. The armed policeman remained standing by the door. Liz looked calmly at Khan and said, I don't know about you, but my French stopped at GCSE. His eyes widened at the sound of her English voice. Then he sat stiffly upright and gave her a defiant look. Liz shrugged. Amir, I haven't come all this way to give you a hard time, but let's not pretend you, sp you speak English just as well as I do, probably with a Birmingham accent. Khan stared at her for a moment as if making up his mind. The key now was to get him to say something, anything would do for a start. Liz had been taught during her initial training at MI5, a complete refusal to speak, even to say yes or no, was disastrous. There was no way forward from there. It reminded her of being taught to fish by her father. When she took too long setting up her rod, he would always say, if the fly's not on the water, you can't catch a fish. Fortunately, Khan decided to speak, saying slowly, are you from the embassy? Not exactly, but I am here to help. Then get me a lawyer. Well, perhaps we should first establish who you are. I take it that you are indeed the Amir Khan of 57 Farndon Street, Birmingham, whose driving license you were carrying when you were arrested by the French Navy. I said I want a lawyer. Ah, if only it were that easy. We're in France, Amir, not England. They do things differently here. You've heard the phrase habeas corpus. She didn't wait for him to, to nod. Well, over here, they haven't. Uh, 
And that's the start of Liz Carlisle trying to get the story out of this young man. She doesn't on that occasion. So she goes off and recruits various people around Birmingham. She recruits his sister, etc., etc. And gradually, the story begins to come clear. And uh, that's the, it's the same way, really, that the, the plots develop in all my books. And now I'm going to stop talking because I know Ruth wants to ask me loads of questions. So I will let her do that. Thank you, Stella. Well, I think I'm going to take a leaf out of uh, Liz Carlyle's book. The trick is to get her to say something. <laughs> um, and I thought maybe we start with kind of softer dolly drop questions. So um, <laughs> you could maybe tell us the shortlist for the Man Booker Prize. Ah, yes. I could not, because we haven't decided. <laughs> We've only decided the long list, and that is uh, out and public. Well, we'll come on to Man Booker in a minute, but let's just uh, stay with, with your career. I love that we, um, you said uh, you know, she'd been in, in, in love with her boss, and uh, her boss had a permanently old wife, but, you know, she had to die. And I thought, what a very spy-like remark, you know. <laughs> when you have to go, you have to go. But you've been out of the intelligence service some 15 years now, and in that period, a huge amount of controversy has surrounded some of its activities. And I wonder if we could just touch on one or two bits of that. Um, at the moment, for instance, um, there's, a, there's a, an inquiry about to take place into whether or not um, intelligence, British intelligence officers were at least complicit in the use of torture when extracting information from um, Britons um, who were at that time abroad. Now, um, do you think that inquiry is going to be useful despite the fact that many people are not going to participate? And do you think it was essential that it was held? Um, I think given the, the sort of public interest, it probably was a good thing that an inquiry was held. I think it's a great pity that um, various people like Liberty, etc., have withdrawn from contributing to it because, I mean, it, it is inevitable, really, with an inquiry concerning our intelligence services that everything can't be made public. Uh, I mean, you know as much as possible will be made public, but there are secrets and our intelligence services can't do their job if everything, including their sources, all their methods, everything they've done, has got to be aired on a public stage. So, you know, I think it's naive to expect that any investigation involving our intelligence services is going to be totally public. Um, what will come of it, I don't know. I mean, I, this is long after my time, of course, and I don't know. I've got no inside information about what, what went on. But, um, you know, my, uh, one of my successors has said, and, and if she said it, then I believe her, that they did not know for a very long time what the Americans were doing in the, you know, in the waterboarding area and, and um, the rendition, etc. So I don't know how this is going to come out. As I say, I've got no inside information, but I would be extremely surprised if it turns out that our intelligence services have been involved. And I think, you know, there's a lot of kind of vocabulary around all this. It's uh, what question are we asking? And, uh, you know, I think that's perhaps what well, will I think, be illuminated. I think one of the questions we're asking, according to one of the, uh, the main concerned, his contention is that not only did, was Britain aware that he was being treated very badly by uh, authorities in Pakistan, but that some of the questions put to him when he was in detention there, were supplied by British intelligence? Well, that may or may not be true. 
I mean, I do think that you have to look at the source of these allegations with an open mind. I mean, you know, people can say all kinds of things, um, but you do have to just, uh, you know, consider what the motives uh, are for saying it. And I don't know what happened. As I say, I wasn't there, and uh, I don't know. But I would be... I wouldn't be surprised if, if questions were being asked, supplied by Britain. Uh, I would be surprised if Britain knowingly participated in any way in torture. Well, if we can um, draw a line between actual participation and knowledge of and making use of, because another um, area of contention is that, um, that British intelligence utilised and um, passed on information, knowing that in that information being sought and obtained, torture had been used by somebody else. Well, I don't know whether that's true or not. Um, Would you approve of it if it were true? Well, I think there is, this is a difficult dilemma, obviously. I mean, if you learn information that is life-threatening, wherever it comes from, then it is, you've got to use it, haven't you? I mean, you can't hold on to information that indicates that a bomb's going to go off and tells you precisely when and where. You've obviously got to use that information. But there is a difference I think, in, in getting that information and in seeking that information. And I think that's where the fine... There are lots of fine lines in this whole area, and I think that's where the fine line comes. But given that you know that it's a big, bad, rough old world out there in, in the world of international intelligence, would it be naive of any of us to suppose that, that, that uh, British intelligence officers didn't act sometimes in an improper manner? I don't think it would be naive. I think it would probably be wrong to think that British intelligence officers acted knowingly in an improper manner, because that's not the kind of thing they do. They're all good guys and girls. Yeah. That's quite a big statement for a huge organization. <laughs> well, the organizations are not that huge. Um, they're all you know, carefully selected people who know what the law is. Um, they are well-managed and well-controlled, and they, they behave accordingly. I mean, I can't obviously say there are no bad apples because occasionally bad apples turn up. I mean, Philby Burgess and McLean, Anthony Blunt, you know, history's full of them. Um, but uh, what I am saying is that the ethic and the ethos of British intelligence is, is very high. Can I turn my attention now to the relationship between the intelligence services and successive British governments? Um, uh, many people suppose, not least in the, in the uh, <laughs> late 90s and, and early noughties, uh, that... that, that um, there was too much of a, too much government interference, if you like, in, in, in the intelligence service and certainly in the way that intelligence was subsequently presented. Um, well, this again, this is beyond my, my period. Um, certainly when I was Director General, there wasn't any interference. There was interest. Obviously, all British governments have an interest, and uh, properly so, in intelligence and in the threats to the security of the state but I never experienced any interference. I think what you're probably talking about is the dossier um, the, on the uh, weapons of mass destruction. Um, my opinion of, of that is that um, it is extremely unwise to put raw intelligence into the public domain um, because the whole thing about intelligence is that it changes what you believe today you may not believe tomorrow because intelligence is an ongoing process and you're learning more things as you go along. So to kind of freeze an intelligence picture and put it into the public domain as though it was the facts is, in my opinion, was, in my opinion, a mistake. What the relationship... You know, I, I read like you do. 
uh, about you know governments leaning on on the JIC etc. I wasn't there. I don't know what happened, uh, but I all I you know do say is that the idea of putting raw intelligence into the public domain as a justification for doing something or, or a reason for doing something was a mistake. Is it also a mistake to put raw intelligence into the hands of over-eager politicians and their aides? Well, I mean, the uh, intelligence services are there to inform the government, uh, and the government is the government. Uh, whether they're over-eager or not is a is I just a meant matter. that without, without, I mean, what seems to be the case, or what's allegedly the case, is that the, the, the intelligence that was delivered to government was then uh, all the nuances were removed. Yeah. And I think that's what happened, and I think that's part of my point about putting raw intelligence into the public domain. Most intelligence reports that you will read are surrounded with caveats. You know, this is what we believe, or a secret and reliable source tells us, or a not very reliable source tells us, but, you know, this is the best we've got. Those are the kind of caveats that you would get in an average intelligence report. Once you've smartened it up and tidied it up and firmed it up to put into the public domain, then all that's gone. And yes, I think that's a mistake. But if you remove the caveats, then obviously the material you're, you're giving is, is, is liable to be misinterpreted. Yeah, and is inaccurate. Now, just, um, I don't want to take up too much of the audience's time, but there's another aspect, I suppose, over the last um, few years, post-Remington years, um, that is a matter for debate, and that is whether um, or not uh, successive governments utilised um, the apparent fear of security threats, threats to national security, utilised that in order to um, serially curb uh, civil liberties? Well, I think there is a very, very fine balance between the government's responsibility to look after us and our rights to our civil liberties. And I think that balance has to be very carefully observed. And I have said and did feel that certainly during the latter years of the Blair government, in their, presumably their desire to ensure that we were all safe, they were trying at least um, by, you know, putting forward proposals for legislation to move, I thought, that line too far into intruding on our civil liberties. And I was very pleased that this current government has pulled back from some of those proposals. And I was very pleased that uh, the House of Lords, for example, pushed back some of the legislation that you know, I thought was moving too much into our civil liberties, like the proposal to be able to keep um, people without charge in prison for long periods. And that was knocked back by the House of Lords, and I think that was quite right. And the other thing I've gone public on was that I did not believe that identity cards would make us safer. And that was, if you, you know, there was a long saga about identity cards, but if you think back to the original reason for identity cards, it was billed as identity cards will make us all safer. And obviously, you know, there may be lots of uses for identity cards, but making us all safer was not one of them. Now, I know that you're no longer in that world, but, but given the, the, uh, the, the terrorist threats that we've seen of late, what do you think would be waking up the current Director General at three o'clock in the morning these days? Um, well, I think that he will be waking up to information that various things, plots are being dreamt up um, in you know various cities around the place. Uh, by I, think, I think I phrased that wrongly. What I meant was what was keeping him awake at three o'clock in the morning. What, what do you think the greatest fear well, is? Well, that fear, yeah. uh, the fear that something uh, has, is being plotted and is about to happen that he hasn't got any intelligence about. 
And you know, one of the things you have to know about intelligence is that there is no such thing as 100% intelligence. You never, you can't know everything because what you're trying to find out is things that people don't want you to find out. Um, and if you, uh, you can find out part of it, but you're never going to be able to find out everything. So what will be keeping him awake, I think, is the fear that, like, for example, 7-7 on the London Underground, that there's something like that being plotted, perhaps imminent, that he doesn't know about. And, you know, that's what keeps us all awake, really. It kept me awake at the time when I was Director General, when the IRA was very active on the streets of London, and it'll be keeping him awake. It's, um, uh, it was put to me by a, a fairly senior politician at this festival this, this very week that because of what had um, happened um, in, in terms of the rioting, which was largely unexpected, I think, by everybody, mm. because of that, that a huge amount of um, resources would now be put into protecting the Olympics uh, next year. And his fear was that so many resources would be pulled into that effort that any, as he put it, intelligent terrorist would, would, would target elsewhere in the, in the UK. Well, that's, that's probably right, actually. I mean, uh, most terrorists would look at the Olympics, I would think, this is guesswork, and say this is going to be so well protected that let's try something else. And I think that's probably right. But I, you know, I mean, I think you have to remember that the security measures for the Olympics will have been being worked on from the day that London won the Olympics. And it, the, you know, the plan will be well honed. Everybody will know what they're doing. All our international colleagues, etc., will be feeding us in any information. The whole thing, you know, is, is, a, is well structured and well organised. And things that happen, like the riots, although they're going to take a lot of police onto the streets, are not going to alter the security plan for the Olympics. Let's just talk a little bit about the impact on you of that job. It's a massive job, but it's also a massively intrusive job. You were the first DG to be publicly named at your own uh, insistence, really, in terms of transparency to a certain extent. But what did that mean in terms of you and your family and your day-to-day -day life? Well, it wasn't actually at my insistence that I was named. I was told one day, you're going to be the next director general. And by the way, the government's decided that on your appointment, your name is going to be made public. So I was given this sort of, um, you know, kind of not very nice deal, really. Um, I, I was very pleased I got the job, but I was very uncertain about the impact of this naming thing, and especially when I learned that there wasn't really very much of a press plan in place. No photograph, because it was at a time when the IRA was very active in London. No minister went on the television and explained why they decided to make this announcement, though the reason was that by then we had an act of parliament in place, and the government felt that the public had a right to know who was leading this organisation. And so what happened, of course, was that the media immediately set about finding out about me and came and camped outside our house and frightened the neighbours and, you know, high drama, really. And in the end, we had to leave, myself and my 16-year-old daughter, the other one was at university, we had to leave overnight, really, with a dog and a suitcase and go and live in a flat at one, in one of our office buildings until we found somewhere to live. Um, and we then lived covertly, really, uh, for the, the period of my time as Director General. That was very disruptive for my younger daughter, as you can imagine, who then had to, you know, she had to think which of her friends could she rely on, who could she give her telephone number to, etc., etc. So it was very intrusive in our, into our family life. And um, it hadn't been until then. I mean, until then, because I had not been publicly known, 
the girls had never really known what I did. They sort of knew I worked for the government and that it was something you didn't talk about. But that was about the extent of it. Except that one day, the new statesman who was doing a, an article about, because we were being accused of infil infiltrating the unions, they found out where we lived. And this was much earlier, in the 1980s. They came and knocked on our front door. And my, young, my older daughter sort of flung open the door and saw these two blokes in dirty Max at the door and uh, shouted up the stairs, Mom, there's somebody to see you. And I came down the stairs, and the door was wide open, and there was a flash, and it was a camera, and they had a camera in the front garden, but it could so easily have been a gun. And I slammed the door shut, and I said, I told you never to open the door unless you knew who was there. And that was really the first moment, I think, that all this intruded into our family life and made the girls realize that perhaps, you know, there was something a bit odd about what their mum did. Strikes me if there's a couple of men with dirty mics at the door, it's surprising they didn't shout up the stairs, Mum, the presser here. You know. <laughs> well, they weren't that sophisticated, actually. <laughs> also, must have been a bit tricky if you're bringing home a bloke to meet your mother, uh, even a prospective mother. No, what does she do? Oh, it's all right, she's a DG yeah. of MI5. Yeah. I mean, you know, take a strong chap to withstand that yeah. kind of... Um, there were occasional chaps who were strong enough, yes. Yes, obviously. But, uh, but yeah, no, it was difficult. It was difficult for the girls. It was difficult for me. Um, but we survived anyway. Let's just quickly have a, a, a quick few questions about Manbuka before we open it up, because uh, we were chatting earlier on about this, um, Stella, and 138 books arriving in, in, in uh, a procession since last Christmas. I mean, that's an yeah. extraordinary commitment. It is a huge commitment, actually. And, of course, when you take these things on, you're not, you don't quite know what the commitment is because nobody says it's going to be 138 books. Um, but that's how it turned out. And it is a huge commitment. And it starts fine. I mean, you know, round about Christmas, a few books dribble in and you sit by the fire with a cup of tea and you think, oh, this is a nice kind of job. And then, you know, the postman starts coming every five minutes with more and more and lorries turn up. And, um, <laughs> and you end up wondering where on earth you're going to put all these things. You know, you're kind of the whole sitting room is sort of covered with books. So it, yes, it really is. What you have to prevent yourself doing is picking up the ones that are very, very thin or the ones that have a, you know, or a very pretty cover or something like that. You have to rigidly read in order um, of the numerical order or when you get around to the meeting, of course, half the people on the, on the judging panel have read this and that's half of them have read that. So we had to be quite, um, quite sort of firm about the way we did it. It's, quite, it's a very exclusive book club, um, the, the Mount Booker <laughs> judging panel. And um, I'm interested to know if there's any kind of uh, gender imbalance. I mean, do the women all tend, when you're, when you're going the, doing the long list of 13, which has been published for some time, yeah. was there any kind of um, gender divide between in the, in the course of that discussion? No, I don't think there was a gender divide. There are three women and two men. That's about um, right. <laughs> the two men are both journalists, I would say. So, you know, that says something, really. Um, and um, What does it say? It <laughs> says that they gang up a bit, I think. <laughs> um, but no, I, I don't think there's been a gender divide, no. Um, we've, you know, we've had... We've got to know each other. I think the key thing about this, um, you know, a group of judges is getting to know each other. And so we've had an, a number of kind of informal meetings as the year's gone on where we've discussed the various books and we've tried to eliminate ones that we all agreed were not going to go forward. So we've got to know each other quite well. So when it comes to the actual choosing that could get quite tense, we've, we kind of, you know, we, we can see the whites of each other's eyes because we know the way we're thinking. Is there, is there a lot of blood in the walls? No, there, there isn't actually. 
Um, and I think that's part of trying to meld this disparate group into a team, which is something that I thought was my responsibility. Because I think you could get blood on the walls if people don't know each other very well and are you know, in, too intent on getting their way. But that's not worked like that with us, no. You're really quite lucky when you think about it because the, the 13 will become the six, the magic six of the shortlist in, in a very short space of time, yeah. beginning of September. Just think if it come out now and you were here in Edinburgh, <laughs> full of authors and publishers and the list came out. Yeah. I mean, you, you wouldn't be able to go out of doors, no, really, would I know. you? <laughs> you have to have quite a thick skin, actually, because obviously all those who are not on, either the long, the short or whatever, uh, you know, it can be pretty nasty, actually. So, you, you're um, planning a holiday quite soon, are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, when it's over, I think so, yes, absolutely. Anyway, let's get some questions from the audience, if we could have the, the lights up, please. Um, there's a couple of mics um, on either side here. If you just wait for the mic to come, that would be really helpful. Thanks very much. Who's going to start us off? Lady in the front row there. I'd like to ask you about how the relationship between MI6 and MI5, if there's a disagreement, who prevails? <laughs> That's an interesting question. That's an interesting question. Um, you have to remember that the two services have got quite different jobs to do. Um, as I said, MI6 is primarily responsible for gathering intelligence and assessing and analyzing, their, or at least assessing their intelligence. And MI5, working very closely with MI6, GCHQ, the police, etc., are responsible for working out, you know, what it all means and taking action or getting action taken on the streets. So that they're two different jobs. If there is a disagreement, as there might be, I suppose, a disagreement about interpretation, then, you know, it's like the Booker Prize. It will be resolved by debate and discussion. And it's not only MI5 and MI6 who would be involved in that. As I say, there will be others, the other intelligence service and the police, etc., cetera, um, will, will resolve it. But, you know, you do, there's a lot said about, you know, how everybody's always at each other's throat, and that is not at all true. I mean, the three intelligence services in this country are essential parts of, of the overall cake of intelligence, and they've each got their different job to do, and they do work very closely together. I mean, I have a, a, a bit of a wind-up in my books in creating these characters who don't get on terribly well, and obviously there are, there, these services have got different ethics and different ethoses and, you know, they recruit different kinds of people. So there are occasionally that individuals don't get on terribly well together, but the whole thing does work very well. And we have a long experience of sharing information in this country, which in America they did not have. So, you know, I think that we're quite well positioned. Next question, yes. I'm doing the, on the aisle there, thank you. Thank you. Um, my question relates to the decision about the level of resources of the country we should uh, uh, use in support of activities. I remember after the July the 7th attack, um, the uh, spokesman at the time said it was very difficult given the very large number of people who potentially could have been under surveillance with, again, limited resources. And as we move into an era where resources become even more limited, how as a country do, are we going to reach an appropriate level of investment um, in our internal security? I think that's um, it's a difficult question to answer because it's all about prioritization, as everything is, really. Um, you know, in, in government, in government departments, 
um, and in, in companies. You have to decide what your priorities are. And so um, in, in the case of our security, those sort of decisions are taken not by the individual service, in other words, not by MI5 itself, but by um, a team of people, high level from Whitehall and the government, who will look at the intelligence that exists and decide how much resource is needed. And as you say, there never is enough resource. And you could, you know, in a way, you could use an infinite resource in trying to counter terrorism. But you have to think about the practicalities of, you know, running enormous services in, in a democracy there is this balance to be struck. We do not want enormous intelligence services in a democracy. We need a, we need a balance. And uh, that's the way we've always worked it. If you look at um, some of the totalitarian countries during the Cold War, the KGB, the Stasi, etc., had enormous uh, intelligence services, enormous internal security services. Everybody was watching everybody else. And in the end, they sort of drowned in information. So all these things are balances and you know as I say there's no such thing as 100% intelligence however many people you have so you're never going to get it right but a lot of thought is given to you know precisely what the threat is and how we need to counter it. Given the nature of modern conflict though would it make more sense in terms of the priorities you mentioned to pour money into intelligence and less money into weaponry? Uh, well you know there is uh, a different role um, to be carried out by the intelligence services and the military and it's for governments to decide whether the approach they want to take is a military approach or a, an intelligence approach. And, you know, weapons are extremely expensive. So obviously, if you decide to go down a military approach, you've got to equip the military with hugely expensive weapons. I don't know what the answer to that is, actually. But I'm, spies are cheap. Spies are cheaper, very much cheaper than, uh, you know, expensive uh, weaponry. Yes, quite. Thanks, yes, I've got two over there, if we could do both of them. And is there anybody here that we're missing? To get back to your the books um, which you've got, you had to get your memoirs cleared, obviously. Do you have to get the novels cleared as well? Um, and have they ever, and they do not back bits, or have you got a pretty good relationship, should we say, now? <laughs> um, yes, I do have to get the, the novels cleared. The rule is that anything that you write uh, that could be seen to relate to your work in the intelligence services has to be cleared. So um, I send the manuscripts of my novels to my former colleagues and they read them uh, through carefully. And occasionally, I mean, the key, what they're looking for, I think, is that I haven't sort of inadvertently fallen over something that they are currently doing. Uh, in terms of um, places or, you know, events or whatever. Um, so far, they have asked me to remove or change very few things. Uh, and names, places, uh, some small thing to do with um, communications, but nothing very much. I dread the day when I send them a, um, a fully completed manuscript and they, they say you can't use that plot at all. Um, <laughs> but they haven't done that yet. So obviously I have not fallen over anything precisely um, that they're doing. I do try to keep them current and, you know, try to touch on the issues that I know they are dealing with. Gentleman up there. Yeah, I just wondered is, if there are any um, foreign equivalents 
of MI5 that during your time uh, you particularly admired and equally agencies that um, you didn't so? <laughs> we expect you to be completely honest here. <laughs> For the front page of The Guardian tomorrow. Um, the, there are a few in Europe um, um, domestic security services that, are, that work broadly the same way as MI5. In America, they don't have uh, an MI5 equivalent. They have the FBI and the CIA and innumerable other agencies, including the Department of Homeland Security, but none of them is quite like MI5 because the, the key to Britain's intelligence services is that they are civilian. They have no police powers and they have no military powers, whereas, of course, in the States, they, they do have aspects of both. Um, so Europe, yes, there are services like us, but a lot of European services are more police-related, so they have police powers. Um, so, you know, they don't exactly equate. But that doesn't mean that you can't work very closely with them, and there is extremely close liaison nowadays. I mean, in my time, there was very close liaison with the Americans, and particularly with the European services, when we were trying to deal with the IRA. But now, of course, there is much wide global um, sharing of information. And one of the key things that happened when I was, just before I became Director General, was the end of the Cold War, of course, and the moment came when we were able to make contact with those people who'd been our enemies all my working life. And I found myself in the headquarters of the intelligence services of Poland and Bulgaria and, you know, all those, Hungary and those countries that we had been watching where we were able to, you know, talk to them openly and help them turn themselves into truly democratic organizations. Um, I also went to uh, Russia in December 1991 to make our first contact with KGB, which was not quite so successful, I must say. There was um, a long line of hard-faced KGB men. We'd gone because Douglas Hurd, who was Foreign Secretary, met the man that Yeltsin had put in charge of the KGB with the object of turning it into a democratic, uh, you know, democratic service. And so we went out to talk to them about what you need to run an intelligence service in a democracy, like law and oversight and those kind of things. <laughs> and um, I, I sat with a couple of colleagues in the Lubyanka, which is their headquarters, which, you know, over the years has been kind of prison, death cell, torture chamber, lecturing this long line of KGB men about what kind of laws you need for democracies. And they clearly had no intention of changing at all, <laughs> even at that moment, you know, when the whole of the Soviet Union was falling to bits. So there are many and varied intelligence services in the world, and some are like us and some aren't, and some you can collaborate with and some you, don't, you can't. After that uh, little vignette about the Russians, is it fair to ask if the American intelligence services ever made you nervous? Uh, ever made me nervous? Their activities? Uh, in Britain, you mean? Or anywhere? Anywhere. Um, sometimes, well, when I was working, I don't think that the American Intelligence Service made me nervous since I've stopped working. Some of the things they've done have certainly made me feel very nervous, yes. Fine, then we've got two over here now, a gentleman in a striped shirt and then a lady in the front. Do you think MI5 missed picking up intelligence to do with the recent riots? And the fact that they happened, do you think they will monitor things differently going forward? No, I don't think MI5 would have had any role in... Uh, dealing with the, the riots or monitoring them because MI5 is limited to issues which affect our national security. 
And I think that the riots will be seen as a, a law and order and a policing matter, not anything that the intelligence services will be getting involved with. Is there anybody watching or policing our security services? Chris Custodius. You are? So is Custodius. Yes, there is. Um, ever since, uh, I think it was, uh, let me just remember the dates of the various Acts of Parliament which were passed. When I first joined MI5, there was no law to cover our activities. And um, we worked by virtue of an instruction which each incoming Home Secretary gave to the Director General, you know, you will l protect the security of the state virtually. Then gradually as the years went by, uh, the interception of communications, uh, telephone interception, etc., was um, enacted, there was a, a law enacted for it which required getting a warrant from a government minister, the Home Secretary. Then following that, the Security Service Act was passed which um, introduced all kinds of oversights for the security service in the form of um, a committee of um, uh, lawyers, uh, a, a, a senior judge who is the commissioner to oversee the activities, etc., etc. There is a parliamentary committee, the Intelligence and Security Committee, and then later on in, uh, I think it was 94, an act was passed doing the same thing for GCHQ and MI6. So, Yes, there is external scrutiny, quite complex external scrutiny, and uh, ranging from you know, internal to external to parliamentary. Thank you. One here in the front and then one in the middle. I was wondering whether I think about the uh, recent young people's riots in London. I believe 450 people have been taken on to look at the CCTV. Would they be trained, or would they just be anybody off the street? You can't have 450 spare people. <laughs> well, these will be uh, taken on by the police, I imagine, um, uh, to gather, you know, to gather the information that's needed to bring people to the courts. Um, uh, well, I imagine they're trained. I mean, I wouldn't like to try and pick out faces from hours and hours of, of stuff, but, but I, I don't know who they are, quite frankly. I imagine, yes, it's definitely be a police effort, and I would imagine that they could be civilian police officers, perhaps, um, but I don't envy them their job, I must say. Um, this is a bit of a populist question. Are you a fan of James Bond films? And if you are, or indeed if you're not, could you tell us who your favorite actor was who played him? Oh. <laughs> That's the man from The Sun, by the way. <laughs> I was a fan of James Bond films when they first started. And I remember seeing the first one in the 1960s, and I can't remember what it was Doctor now. No. Was it Doctor No or was it? Casino Royale. Casino Royale, wasn't it? Yes. Um, and I thought they were great. You know, they were, they were fun and they were, you know, and kind of exciting and stuff. And I think my favorite was Roger Moore, actually, of all the... <laughs> Wrong answer. Should have been Sean Connery. <laughs> you thought you were here. And I cannot you, tell yeah. a lie. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, but I mean, I think they've gone off, quite frankly. It, they've, uh, as they've gone on, they've got so kind of gimmicky and gadgety and ridiculous that I really, you know, I can't be bothered watching them. And it's the same with spooks. If anybody's going to ask me if spooks is real, 
the answer is no, it's not real. And uh, it's, Good program, though. It, everybody loves it, I know. And uh, it's coming to an end, I gather. But anyway, I know it's great entertainment, and everybody loves it. But it bears absolutely no relation to anything <laughs> that goes on in MI5. I've already said MI5 is a team effort, not five people going out every week to save the nation from some hideous thing <laughs> and putting themselves in danger. Because, I mean, the other thing that's wrong is that MI5 officers do not voluntarily put themselves in danger. The whole idea is not to lose your people. You surround them with all the protection, and I write about this in the books, of, of uh, counter-surveillance to sort of protect them if they have to go into potentially dangerous situations. Whereas in spooks, they seem to charge off in a kind of gung-ho manner, uh, risking all. Um, just to extend that populist moment for 10 seconds, hands up for Sean Connery. <laughs> Put my hands up for Roger Moore. <laughs> right, we've got somebody up there, and I think there was somebody else in the front here. Yes, and a lady in the front. Well, why don't we do the front first of all while we find the person up there? Thank you. Thank you. A question about the Man Booker uh, listing process. First of all, I hugely admire somebody who, when reading book 130, can remember anything about book number one. <laughs> but my question is, is this. I wondered whether you and your fellow judges work to a prearranged set of criteria with matrices and boxes that you tick, or whether it's more loosely personal and subjective than that. The latter is the case. Um, Man Booker give the judges no guidance at all. I mean, the... It merely says the best novel published during the year. So that's what you're presented with. You, um, I think what we kind of informally agreed between us was that we wanted books that people would actually enjoy reading. Um, we wanted um, books that um, in one way or another sort of illuminated something, be it um, his historical events, current events, added a, new, added a new light to it, were, were well-written according to our lights and were with interesting, well-developed characters. And I think those are the kind of informal things that we were looking for. But, and you're right, I mean, you, can't, you have to write quite detailed notes about these books as you read them. And if you are lazy and you allow yourself to pick up the next one before you've made your notes, you're up a gum tree. You have to do it. Uh, there and then, and I think we all, you know, we all did, and we were all consulting our notes as we were discussing the books. But it is, I mean, it's a quite a, you know, these, this group of people that comes together quite haphazardly uh, with different personalities. It's quite a kind of personal view, I think, that we're, we're taking, really. But, of course, the judge will have the casting, the chair of the judges will have the casting vote. Yeah, well, the chair of the judges will have the casting vote if it comes to uh, a dead heat. And we'll have to see when we get round to choosing the eventual winner how that works. Interesting thought. Mm. One last quick question, please, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, which ones of the writers of the, um, about the secret world do you think got it most nearly right? And... Um, do you think it's necessary to have actual personal experience of spying or whatever you care to call it, intelligence. You're not allowed to say yourself, by the way. <laughs> After myself, of course. Um, I think um, John le Carre has to, his uh, Cold War books, I think, have to be the most realistic. Um, although that era is now over and the intelligence services are now quite different, 
I think what he wrote about in his Cold War period was incredibly accurate representation of that sort of wilderness of mirrors, you know, where nobody was quite sure. The whole the key to the whole thing was infiltration, penetration, moles. You know, who, who can you rely on? Whose word can you trust? Is something how it looks or is it something else? And I think he got that very clearly. And it's an atmosphere I can just remember when I joined MI5 in the late 1960s. They were still really reeling under the revelations about the Cambridge spies, even though they were quite a long time before. And the fact that our intelligence services had been infiltrated by the KGB um, and that Peter Wright was still there when I joined, for example, who was, you know, the guy who wrote Spycatcher and went off to Tasmania. He was the archetypal, you can't believe anything you hear, you know, nod, nod, wink, wink, I know more than you do. So that attitude was around, and I think John le Carre got it absolutely perfectly in those, in those books. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry we are um, out of time, but, but uh, Stella Remington is going to be in the signing tent, which is the recidivists amongst you know, is left and left again. And uh, she'll be there to chat to you to sign copies of her new book. And in the meantime, would you please join me in giving her a very warm round of applause. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.